This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of thoracolumbar burst fractures from the spine section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Thoracolumbar burst fractures are a common high-energy traumatic vertebral fracture caused by flexion of the spine that leads to a compression force through the anterior and middle column of the vertebra, leading to retropulsion of bone into the spinal canal and compression of the neural elements. Diagnosis is made with radiographs of the thoracolumbar spine. CT scan is useful for fracture characterization and surgical planning. Treatment is bracing or surgical decompression and stabilization depending on whether the patient has neurologic deficits and whether the fracture is unstable with a risk of drifting into kyphosis. Now let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as demographics, thoracolumbar burst fractures are often seen from falls from a height or motorcycle accidents. Moving on to etiology, in terms of pathophysiology, the mechanism of thoracolumbar burst fractures involves axial loading with flexion. In terms of pathoanatomy, know that at the thoracolumbar junction, there is a fulcrum of increased motion that makes the spine more vulnerable to traumatic injury. Burst fractures typically occur between T10 to L2, which is the thoracolumbar junction. As far as neurologic deficits, canal compromise is often caused by retropulsion of bone. Know that maximum canal occlusion and neural compression can occur at the moment of impact. Tissue recoiling post-injury can minimize the extent of displacement, and retropulse fragments resorb over time and usually do not cause progressive neurologic deterioration. As far as the deficit type, the location of stenosis relative to the conus determines spinal cord injury, conus medullaris syndrome, and neurogenic claudication due to stenosis distal to the conus. Associated injuries with thoracolumbar burst fractures include concomitant spine fractures, traumatic neurotomy, chest and intra-abdominal injuries, and long bone fractures. Concomitant spine fractures occurs in 20% of patients. A traumatic neurotomy is associated with lamina fractures and a split spinous process. Chest and intra-abdominal injuries are common. You may also find thoracic spine fractures with neurologic deficit. Know that one-third are associated with hemoneumothorax, major vessel injury, and diaphragmatic rupture. In terms of flexion distraction and fracture dislocations, these injuries may be associated with bowel rupture, major vessel injury, upper urinary tract injury, hepatic, splenic, and pancreatic lacerations. Finally, thoracolumbar burst fractures can also be associated with long bone fractures, which can make rehabilitation difficult. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. We'll go over the thoracic osteology, lumbar osteology, the Denis three-column system, the posterior ligamentous complex, and the spinal cord. So starting with thoracic osteology, T1 to T10 are rigidly fixed to the ribs that join each other anteriorly via the sternum. This is the least mobile portion of the entire spine. T10 to L2 is considered the thoracolumbar junction. T10 to T12 have free-floating ribs and are more mobile than the upper thoracic spine. Transition from rigid thoracic spine to mobile lumbar spine acts as a stress riser and predisposes to injury. In terms of lumbar osteology, this becomes increasingly more mobile as you progress caudally, and this portion is increasingly prone to degenerative changes. Now let's talk about the Denis three-column system. As far as the clinical relevance, it's only moderately reliable in determining the clinical degree of stability. As far as definitions, the anterior column is defined as the anterior longitudinal ligament or ALL and the anterior two-thirds of the vertebral body and annulus. The middle column is defined by the posterior longitudinal ligament or the PLL and the posterior one-third of the vertebral body and the annulus. The posterior column is defined by the pedicles, lamina, facets, ligamentum flavum, 
spinous process, and posterior ligament complex, or PLC. Instability is defined by injury to the middle column as evidenced by widening of the interparticular distance on the AP radiograph, as well as loss of height of the posterior cortex of the vertebral body. Instability can also be defined by disruption of the posterior ligament complex combined with anterior and middle column involvement. Moving on to posterior ligamentous complex, this is considered to be a critical predictor of spinal fracture stability, and it consists of the supraspinous ligament, the interspinous ligament, the ligamentum flavum, and the facet capsule. As far as evaluation, determining the integrity of the posterior ligamentous complex can be challenging. Conditions where the posterior ligamentous complex is clearly ruptured includes in the setting of a bony chance fracture, widening of the interspinous distance, progressive kyphosis with non-operative treatment, and facet diastasis. As far as conditions where the integrity of the posterior ligament complex is indeterminate, the MRI shows signal intensity between the spinous processes. Finally, as far as the spinal cord, know that the spinal cord ends at L1 to L2. The conus medullaris houses the upper motor neurons on the sacral motor nerves. Fractures involving L1 and resulting in conus medullaris syndrome cause paralysis of the bowel and bladder with sparing of the motor nerve roots of the lower extremity. Now let's go over the classification of thoracolumbar burst fractures. We'll go over the Denis classification and the thoracolumbar injury classification and severity score, otherwise known as the TLIC score. So starting with the Denis classification, this is divided into five types. Type A, B, C, D, and E. Type A is characterized as a fracture of both end plates and the bone is retropulsed into the canal. Type B is characterized by fracture of the superior end plate. It is common and occurs due to a combination of axial load with flexion. Type C is characterized as a fracture of the inferior end plate. Type D is a burst rotation fracture, and this fracture can be misdiagnosed as a fracture dislocation. The mechanism of this injury is a combination of axial load and rotation. Finally, type E is a burst lateral flexion injury, and this type of fracture differs from the lateral compression fracture in that it presents an increase of the interparticular distance on AP radiograph. Moving on to the thoracolumbar injury classification and severity score or TLIC score, the injury characteristic qualifier points can be broken down into injury morphology, neurologic status, and posterior ligamentous complex injury. So in terms of injury morphology, this is further broken down into compression, burst, rotation slash translation, and distraction. Compression gives you one point, burst gives you two points, rotation slash translation gives you three points, and distraction gives you four points. Moving on to neurologic status, this is further divided into intact, nerve root, incomplete spinal cord or conus medullaris injury, complete spinal cord or conus medullaris injury, and caudal syndrome. So intact neurologic status gives you zero points, nerve root injury gives you two points, incomplete spinal cord or conus medullaris injury gives you three points, complete spinal cord or conus medullaris injury gives you two points, and caudal syndrome gives you three points. Finally, moving on to posterior ligamentous complex integrity, this is further divided into intact, suspected slash indeterminate, and disrupted. Intact gives you zero points where there is no interspinous ligament widening seen with flexion views. MRI also shows no edema in the interspinous ligament region. Suspected slash indeterminate gives you two points where an MRI shows some signal in the region of the interspinous ligaments. Finally, disrupted will give you three points where widening of the interspinous distance is seen. Finally, as far as TLIX treatment implications, a score of less than four points will correspond to non-surgical management. With a score of exactly four points, you can proceed with non-surgical or surgical management, 
and in the setting of a score of greater than four points, surgical management is indicated. Moving on to presentation of thoracolumbar burst fractures, as far as history, this is secondary to a high energy mechanism, specifically axial loading and flexion mechanisms, which can be secondary to a fall from a height, for example, fall from a deer hunting stand or fall from a ladder, etc., as well as high-speed motor vehicle collisions. Symptoms may include severe back pain, radicular pain, and paresthesias. On physical exam, as far as vital signs in these patients, hypotension is common, and this can be secondary to neurogenic shock or hypovolemic shock. In neurogenic shock, there is hypotension with associated bradycardia. This suggests spinal cord injury leading to loss of autonomic regulation. In hypovolemic shock, this is hypotension with compensatory tachycardia, which suggests massive hemorrhage from major vessel injury. On inspection, be sure to log roll the patient during initial assessment to avoid iatrogenic spinal cord injury in the setting of an unstable fracture pattern. You may find skin abrasions and ecchymosis, and know that open spinal fractures are uncommon. Moving on to palpation of the spinous processes, be sure to feel for fluid collection, crepitus, increased interspinous distance, which suggests injury to the posterior elements, and localized tenderness. Neurologic exam should evaluate motor, sensory, and reflexes. And as far as reflexes, absence of a bulbocavernosis reflex is considered spinal shock, and this can persist for up to 72 hours. A hyperactive bulbocavernosis reflex suggests disinhibition and a complete spinal cord injury. Moving on to imaging, recommended views include an AP and a lateral of the cervical, thoracic, and lumbar spine. Often a CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis is done by the trauma team instead of radiographs. Imaging of the entire spine must be performed due to concomitant spine fracture in 20% of patients. In terms of flexion and extension lateral radiographs, this is useful once the patient is stabilized to get an understanding of the integrity of the posterior ligamentous complex. As far as findings, the AP may show widening of the pedicles as well as coronal deformity. The lateral will show retropulsion of bone into the canal, and know that the extent of retropulsion can be underestimated with plain radiographs alone. You may see kyphotic deformity as well as chance-like spinous process fractures. Finally, as far as flexion slash extension, Diastasis of spinous process with flexion indicates soft tissue injury to the posterior ligamentous complex. Moving on to CT scan, this is indicated when there is fracture on plain film, when there is neurologic deficit in the lower extremity, or if there is inadequate plain films, as a CT scan has higher sensitivity at detecting acute spine fractures than plain films. A CT scan most accurately assesses the extent of fragment retropulsion and is best assessed on the axial views. It also has better assessment of vertebral body comminution. CT myelography is indicated as an alternative for patients with pacemakers and other implants that are MRI incompatible. Keep in mind, however, that CT myelography cannot assess the cord status and be sure to consider traumatic durotomy. Moving on to MRI, this is indicated whenever there are neurological deficits in these patients. An MRI can also assess the presence of a posterior ligamentous injury, and this should be performed in nearly every case unless radiographs and CT clearly suggest injury. An MRI is useful to evaluate for the level of the conus relative to the retropulse bone, spinal cord or thecal sac compression by disc or osseous material, as well as cord edema or hematoma. Cord edema can manifest as fusiform cord enlargement and will be represented by increased signal intensity on T2-weighted images. Cord hematoma will have decreased signal intensity on T2-weighted images, and there may be a halo of T2 enhancement for surrounding edema. Know that the presence of cord edema at more than two vertebral levels and hematoma are poor prognostic signs for functional motor recovery. Finally, MRI is also useful to evaluate for injury to the posterior ligamentous complex. 
know that increased signal intensity on T2-weighted images in the posterior ligamentous complex is concerning for instability and may warrant surgical intervention. This is also best visualized on the sagittal images. Moving on to treatment of thoracolumbar burst fractures, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes activity as tolerated plus or minus thoracolumbar orthosis. Indications include patients that are neurologically intact and mechanically stable. So these patients will have their posterior ligamentous complex preserved, no focal kyphosis on flexion and extension lateral radiographs, kyphosis of less than 30 degrees, which is controversial, and when the vertebral body has lost less than 50% of body height, which is controversial. Non-operative management may also be indicated for a TLIC score of 3 or lower. In terms of modality for non-operative management, as far as thoracolumbar orthosis, recent evidence shows no clear advantage of TLSO on outcomes. If it provides some symptomatic relief, this may be beneficial for the patient, but bracing may not be suitable for those with associated abdominal or chest injuries. In terms of outcomes, retropulse fragments resorb over time and usually do not cause neurologic deterioration. There are also decreased complication rates in neurologically intact patients treated non-surgically. Know that there's equivalent outcomes in neurologically intact patients. Remember that prolonged bed rest is associated with increased deconditioning and recumbency complications like pneumonia, DVT, etc. Operative options include posterior instrumented fusion slash stabilization without decompression, as well as neurologic decompression and spinal stabilization. Posterior instrumented fusion slash stabilization without decompression is indicated in the setting of unstable fracture patterns as defined by injury to the posterior ligamentous complex, progressive kyphosis, lamina fractures, which is controversial, and polytrauma in which surgical stabilization can assist with recovery and rehabilitation of other injuries. The technique may be performed with percutaneous pedicle screws using fluoroscopy or navigation. And remember, you may extend instrumentation further than the level of arthrodesis. Remember, few short and instrument long. In terms of outcomes, unstable injuries are more likely to benefit from surgical stabilization compared to non-surgical treatment. Finally, moving on to neurologic decompression and spinal stabilization. Indications include neurologic deficits with radiographic evidence of cord-slash-thecal sac compression. Both complete and incomplete spinal cord injuries require decompression and stabilization to facilitate rehabilitation. Neurologic decompression and spinal stabilization is also indicated for a TLIC score of 5 or higher. As far as the surgical techniques for this option, while classical teaching was the anterior approaches required to eliminate anterior pathology, with modern techniques, decompression can be performed with the posterior approach or the anterior-slash-direct-lateral approach. The posterior approach is favored when the injury is below the conus, so it's possible to medialize the thecal sac to perform decompression of the canal-slash-posterior corpectomy and expandable cage. The posterior approach is also favored when there's injury to the posterior ligamentous complex, so posterior tension band stabilization is required. The posterior approach is also favored when there are fracture dislocations. The anterior-slash-direct lateral approach is favored when neurologic deficits are caused by anterior compression, such as bony retropulsion, especially above the conus medullaris that is above L2. The anterior-slash-direct lateral approach is also favored as it allows for thorough decompression of the thecal sac. It's also favored for substantial vertebral body comminution in order to reconstitute the anterior column. The anterior-slash-direct lateral approach is also favored when there's a kyphotic deformity of greater than 30 degrees, as well as in chronic injuries greater than 4 to 5 days from the time of injury. The cons of the anterior-slash-direct lateral approach is that you must consider the level of the diaphragm. 
In terms of outcomes, studies have suggested posterior distraction instrumentation with ligamentotaxis have similar clinical and radiographic outcomes as anterior decompression and 360-degree stabilization. Note that over-distraction of the anterior column can lead to pseudoarthrosis, chronic pain, and recurrent deformity. Now, let's go over some of these surgical techniques in a bit more detail. In terms of posterior instrumented fusion slash stabilization without decompression, the approach is a posterior midline approach where you will perform subperiosteal elevation of the paraspinal musculature and expose lateral to the transverse processes. As far as the technique, this involves transpedicular screw fixation above and below the level of injury. Historically, this involves three levels above and two levels below the level of injury. However, modern constructs typically involve one level above and one level below the injury. Know that short segment fixation is not suitable for injuries involving the thoracolumbar junction. Complications of posterior instrumented fusion slash stabilization without decompression is loss of sagittal plane correction. Moving on to neurologic decompression and spine stabilization, in terms of approach, the posterior approach is typically a posterior midline approach where you will perform subperiosteal elevation of the paraspinal musculature and exposed lateral to the transverse processes. As far as the anterior approach in the lumbar spine, you will use an anterior retroperitoneal or transperitoneal approach, which is usually done with the left paramedian incision, and this is suitable for levels below L1. The anterior approach in the thoracolumbar junction will involve a lateral lumbotomy and is suitable for injuries at T11 to L1. You will typically perform a left-sided approach to avoid the liver obstructing access. For the anterior approach in the thoracic spine, you will perform a lateral thoracotomy, where a right-sided approach is performed to avoid major vessels. This is appropriate for injuries above T11. As far as the technique for neural decompression, let's talk about direct posterior decompression, anterior decompression, and indirect decompression. So in the setting of posterior decompression, the retropulse bone can be removed via a transpedicular approach. This is usually done below the level of the conus medullaris at L2. Significant dural retraction is required, however, which may iatrogenically damage the cord. Be sure to avoid laminectomy if possible, as it will further destabilize the spine by compromising the posterior supporting structures. As far as anterior decompression, a corpectomy is performed with direct removal of canal-occupying fragments. Know that the ipsilateral pedicle and transverse process are removed, and a corpectomy is performed until the medial wall of the contralateral pedicle is visualized. Anterior decompression is preferable for fractures at or above the level of the cornus medullaris, which is L1 to L2. As far as indirect decompression, distraction and a lordosing rod construct leads to ligamentotaxis of the retropulse fragments. Attachments of the annulus fibrosis and posterior longitudinal ligament to the fragments facilitates reduction. Keep in mind this is less effective if performed 4-5 to five days after the injury. Indirect decompression restores height and sagittal alignment with posterior instrumentation. In addition, keep in mind that monoaxial screws provide greater distractive forces for deformity correction. As far as arthrodesis, let's go over posterior fusion and anterior fusion. A posterior fusion is usually performed with locally harvested autograft and freeze-dried cancellus allograft plus or minus BMP. Posterior instrumentation should be under distraction and lordosis to restore vertebral body height and achieve indirect decompression. As far as an anterior fusion, structural bone graft is placed in the corpectomy site to reconstitute the anterior column. This will be done with the tricortical iliac crest autograft, humeral or tibial allograft, and expandable metal cages with locally harvested autograft. This can be stabilized with anterior instrumentation, posterior instrumentation, or both. As far as complications of posterior decompression, the ones to know include dural tear, iatrogenic cord injury from excessive thecal retraction above the conus medullaris, 
and iatrogenic instability, secondary to laminectomy in the setting of a disrupted posterior ligamentous complex. Complications of an anterior decompression can include ileus or pleural effusion. An ileus may typically be seen with a transperitoneal approach to the lumbar spine, while a pleural effusion is related to approaches requiring thoracotomy. Now, let's finish this review session talking about some overall complications of thoracolumbar burst fractures. We'll go over entrapped nerve roots and dural tear, pain, progressive kyphosis, flat back, surgical site infection, pseudoarthrosis, and iatrogenic neurologic injury. So starting with entrapped nerve roots and dural tear, this can be from associated laminar fractures, or it can be iatrogenic from decompression. Know that there's a decreased risk of dural tears with the anterior approach due to improved visualization of the thecal sac during decompression. Entrapped nerve roots and a dural tear requires closure primarily or reinforced with a dural patch. These patients will have prolonged recumbency postoperatively. Moving on to pain, this is the most common complication and can be secondary to over-distraction with instrumentation. Another complication is progressive kyphosis, which is common with unrecognized injury to the PLL, and also when there's increased comminution of the vertebral body, as you will have loss of the anterior column support. Flat back is another potential complication that leads to pain, a forward flex posture, and easy fatigue. These patients may also have post-traumatic syringomyelia. Surgical site infection can occur in up to 10% of cases. Trauma predisposes to infection, secondary to a catabolic state, increased soft tissue damage, and an inflammatory response. Surgical site infection requires irrigation and debridement with culture-specific antibiotics. Pseudoarthrosis can result from over-distraction instrumentation. And finally, iatrogenic neurologic injury can occur in 1% of cases, and causes include over-medialized pedicle screws and inadvertent manipulation of the spinal cord. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, A 19-year-old male is evaluated in the trauma bay following a snowmobile accident. He is conscious and reporting severe low back pain. On exam, he is an Asia B. Imaging is obtained and demonstrates an L1 burst fracture with 60% retropulsion into the thecal sac, as well as translation of L1 on L2. There is significant edema on the MRI STIR sequence involving the paraspinal musculature, interspinous ligament, and ligamentum flavum. What is the recommended treatment for this injury? And the choices are 1. Reassessment upon return of the bubble cavernosis reflex. 2. Pain control and early mobilization with or without bracing. 3. Posterior percutaneous instrumentation utilizing ligamentotaxis for indirect reduction. 4. Corpectomy with placement of an inner body cage. And 5. Corpectomy with placement of an inner body cage and posterior instrumentation. The correct answer to this question is 5. Corpectomy with placement of an inner body cage and posterior instrumentation. So for the highly unstable burst fracture described in the question stem, Corpectomy with the placement of an inner body cage and posterior instrumentation is the best option. There is a translational component to this injury, disruption of the posterior ligamentous complex, and incomplete neurological injury with a TLIC score of 9. To quickly review, burst fractures according to the Denis three-column theory result from failure of the anterior and middle columns. Mechanisms of failure include compression, tension, rotation, and shear. If a burst fracture involves failure of the posterior column, that is osseous neural arch, interspinous and supraspinous ligaments and ligamentum flavum, it is considered unstable. For stable burst fractures without neurologic compromise, non-operative treatment is indicated, as studies have shown worse long-term outcomes in this patient population treated surgically. 
Decompressing and stabilizing unstable burst fractures with an incomplete neurologic injury can often result in neurologic improvement. Patel and Vaccaro present a review article on the TLIC score. This classification system was created for ease of use, prognostic value, and reliability. Injury morphology, the integrity of the posterior ligamentous complex, and neurologic status are included in this scoring system. Kirkpatrick provides a review article on the anterior approach for the management of thoracolumbar fractures. He states that surgery is often indicated for patients with incomplete deficits, marked canal compromise, severe anterior comminution, or kyphosis of greater than 30 degrees. Utilizing an anterior approach, the surgeon can directly visualize and decompress the dura mater and reconstruct the anterior column. Spivak et al. provide a review of the management of thoracolumbar spine trauma published in 1995. They state, quote, in cases of significant canal compromise and incomplete or complete neurologic injury, we prefer anterior decompression by means of vertebral corpectomy and autologous iliac crest struck grafting, followed by posterior compression instrumentation with the use of hooks and transpedicular screws. Such a construct provides the most structural stability. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, reassessment upon return of the bulbocavernosis reflex is incorrect, as we assume from the question stem that the patient's bulbocavernosis reflex is intact, as asia grading would not be possible in its absence. Answer two, pain control and early mobilization with or without bracing is incorrect, as this injury requires surgical management to stabilize the spine and prevent further neurological insult. Answers 3, posterior percutaneous instrumentation utilizing ligamentotaxis for indirect reduction. And answer 4, corpectomy with placement of an inner body cage are both incorrect, as an unstable burst fracture with a neurologic deficit warrants corpectomy with the placement of an interbody cage and posterior instrumentation. And moving on to the final question. In patients with stable thoracolumbar burst fracture and no neurologic deficits, operative treatment has what long-term outcome when compared to non-operative management? And the choices are 1. Improve sagittal balance. 2. Decrease pain scores. 3. Improve return to work status. 4. Improve function. And 5. Increase disability and complications. The correct answer to this question is 5. Increase disability and complications. So although a very controversial topic, evidence supports in patients with stable thoracolumbar burst fractures without neurologic deficits, there is no advantages to surgical treatment. Wood et al. performed the first randomized control trial comparing operative versus non-operative treatment of thoracolumbar burst fractures in patients with no neurological deficits. They found no major long-term advantages with operative treatment and increased disability and complications with operative treatment. Nanantherin et al. performed a meta-analysis to look at non-operative versus operative treatment for thoracolumbar burst fractures without neurologic deficit. At final follow-up, they found no between-group differences in pain, Roland-Morris disability questionnaire scores, and return-to-work rates. Agus et al. found that regardless of the number of columns involved, non-operative treatment led to satisfactory results with no neurologic deterioration in their cohort of 29 patients. They conclude that non-operative treatment is a viable option in patients with intact two- and three-column injured Denis types A, B, and C thoracolumbar burst fractures. That's all for this review about thoracolumbar burst fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, 
please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.